with you all gathered on the Lord's Day. Always a pleasure to hear the saints singing and to join in of one mind and heart and prayer. And as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, this morning we will be focusing on verses 27 through 38. And so let us hear and read the Word of God together, beginning in John chapter 4, verse 27. And at this point His disciples came, and they marveled that He talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to Him. In the meantime, His disciples urged Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought Him something, anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to finish His work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us unite our hearts in prayer and ask God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we continue now in our worship through the preaching of Your Word, as we all gather here with reverent hearts, eager to hear the words of eternal life, we pray, Father, that You would be gracious to Your church. Father, we pray that even as we have just sung the prayer that Your church would arise and be bold and faithful with the Gospel, we pray, Father, that You would grant that request. Lord, as we see the example of this woman and her evangelistic zeal, as we see these disciples being corrected and challenged by Jesus to be more concerned with the harvest of souls than they are with the food that they need for their stomachs. And supremely, Father, as we see Your Son here who tells us that it is His food to do Your will and to finish Your work, We pray that we, as Christ's people, would be imitators of our perfect Savior. Father, stir up within us a zeal to give ourselves to the work of the kingdom, to labor in the harvest. We pray, Father, that You would be merciful to us even this morning, to any and all who are here who don't know Christ, 
We pray, Father, that You would till the soil of their hearts and cause them to be ripe for the harvest. That by Your grace, through the power of Your Spirit, You would awaken them to eternal life. That You would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness and sin into the kingdom of the light of Your Son. Father, we pray for them that the things that now seem uninteresting and unimportant to them would become to them the most important things. The matters of their soul. The matters of eternal life, of knowing God, of being rescued and saved from their sins, and being found safe, having the righteousness of Christ. Father, bless us as Your church, we pray. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're picking up now again. This is part four of the woman at the well. Jesus has been privately counseling this woman. Uh, As you remember, the disciples at the beginning of the chapter have departed into the city to buy food. And in this time that has elapsed while the disciples are in the city, Jesus has counseled this woman and revealed Himself to her not only as a prophet who knows her sins in a way that no one but God could know them, but He has now revealed Himself to her as the Messiah who has come. And so, we pick up with our exposition in verse 27, which says, and at this point His disciples came and they marveled that He talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the disciples return from the city with food and they are amazed at the scene that they arrive upon. And one reason for this marveling is that these disciples are probably thinking the exact same way that this woman was thinking at the beginning of the chapter. And they are astounded that Jesus would even hold a conversation with a Samaritan. Let alone a Samaritan woman given the rivalry and hatred that existed between their peoples. But secondly, it specifically mentions that they marveled because she is a woman. Because it was the common belief of that day that instructing women was generally just a waste of time. Now, as we'll see, that's obviously not true as ironically, it is this woman who actually turns out to be the fruitful evangelist in this story. And so they marvel at what they see and yet, at least in this instance, we can't always credit the apostles with this, but at least in this instance, they have the wisdom to hold their tongue. No one asked, what do you seek or why are you you speaking with her? And Christian, there's a lesson there for us. Anytime we are perplexed with something that appears to us to be a difficulty, whether it be in the Word of God itself, and we don't know how this fits with this, or whether it comes to trying to interpret and understand the providence of God, even though there may seem to us something objectionable, we must always remember this, that whatever God does or says is good and right. And we must assume that there is something amiss in my understanding, not something amiss in God's works. And we, like the disciples, should hold our judgment and our tongue lest we be found trifling with God. And so, verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. 
Could this be the Christ? Notice she forgot her original errand. Notice that detail. She left her water pot. Now, if you remember, think back on the previous uh, parts of this chapter. Just moments before this, this woman was consumed with the water that Jacob's well had to offer her. But not any longer. Not after speaking with Christ. She has been awakened by the Spirit of God to understand and see the significance of this visitation that she has received from the Lord. And she is so taken up in spiritual realities that now the needs of her body become something relatively unimportant. And so she leaves her water pot there, I think first of all, as an act of kindness to Christ so that He can drink, But secondly, she leaves her water pot so that she can make greater haste into the city in order to tell them of Christ. It's amazing. Immediately, upon coming into a saving knowledge of Christ and believing on Christ, she immediately becomes a laborer in the vineyard of Christ and a worker in His harvest. The very harvest He's about to teach His disciples about. And... Just a a lesson from this woman. The zeal of new converts is not something that should be primarily criticized and quenched, but rather something that should be admired for how much they are consumed with their fresh experience of grace. And I think even sometimes we need to give room for where new converts, even perhaps to an extent, neglect their earthly duties because of their newfound joy found in Christ and their zeal for the kingdom. Matthew Henry says, quote, when we have done hearing the word, then it is time to be speaking the word. And so going on, John writes, she went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, depending on how you translate that, I tend to favor it in more the sense that she's making an assertion in the form of a question, as in, is this not the Christ? Okay, And so she is proclaiming to them this man who has told her everything she had ever done. And Christian, notice how solicitous she is that others be acquainted with Christ. She, She wants them not just to hear from her own lips about Christ and her experience with Christ, but she wants them to come with her and see Christ for themselves. You think about it. She's still a very new convert. And thus, she's limited in her knowledge and she's got a very simple testimony. But she is assured that if they would just come with her and hear Christ for themselves, they will be convinced. Come see Him. Come converse with Him. And note the lesson there, Christian. We in our evangelism should be eager not only to tell others about Christ, which we should, but we should also be urging others to attend the means of grace where they will come personally face to face with Christ themselves in His Word. We should encourage people as we are speaking to them about Christ to actually read the words of Scripture and the Word of God to meet Christ for themselves. And last last note on this verse. Notice how sincere she was about what made her admire Him. He told me all things that I ever did. 
Now remember, that primarily had to do with a revelation of her own sins and her sinful past. And she makes plain to them the part of Christ's speech to her that most people would be ashamed to repeat. But she doesn't save face, which is an evidence of grace, but she exalts Christ. And then in verse 30, we see the success of her mission. If you look at verse 30. It says, Then they, that is, the people of the city, then they went out of the city and came to Him. Now, this sets the stage for Jesus' private instruction of His apostles in the following verses. And there's irony here. Um, Both the woman... think, Think about the beginning of this chapter. The beginning of this chapter began with both this woman and the apostles being concerned about the things of the body. Right? This woman came out to draw water. The disciples went into the city to buy food. But whereas the disciples' trip into the city yielded no spiritual harvest, and they are still, we see in the next verse, concerned about the food for the stomach, this woman drops her water pot, runs into the city, and brings back with her the kind of food, the kind of harvest that Jesus is interested in. And the kind of harvest that He's going to teach them about. And so verse 31, in the meantime, while they're coming out to Him, His disciples urged Him saying, Rabbi, eat. Now remember, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sat down at the well because He was wearied from His journey. Okay? So it's not that He's not eating because He's not hungry. It's that the opportunity of reaping a spiritual harvest among these Samaritans is more satisfying and more needful of His attention than His physical food. Right? The Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And though, to the disciples' credit here, though they are just simply caring for their Master and urging Him to eat, yet it is, such, it is so much so much greater is Christ's devotion and love for sinners that He refuses the things needful for the body in order to focus on what was for Him true food. And Christian, may we imitate Christ in that. In seeking first the kingdom of God, trusting that all other things will be added unto us. Verse 32, But He said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. And again, here comes in again that theme of spiritual ignorance that we've seen. We saw it in chapter 2. Well, actually, we saw it in in, uh, chapter 4 with the woman. We saw it with Nicodemus. We saw it in chapter 2 with the temple. The disciples answer in verse 33. They said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And so they hear Jesus' words, I have food to eat that you do not know of, and they're thinking carnally. They're thinking of the earth. I mean, who, you know, who brought him a sandwich? Who brought him something to eat? And just as he taught the woman about living water, so he's about to teach the disciples about that which is true food. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. That is a glorious statement of Christ's devotion to the will of His Father. Christ's greatest delight, His greatest sustenance, 
His greatest satisfaction was doing the will and finishing the work of His Father who sent Him into the world. As as much as the disciples' lives were focused on the food that they wanted for their bellies, Jesus says that even more important than that is to be hungry to do the will of God. That is the errand that Christ was sent into the world to do. To bring all of His own into a true knowledge of God that they might be happy in God and know God savingly. And Christian, notice here, we'll say more about this in our our doctrine and application. Notice with what earnestness and delight Jesus obeyed His Father. His desire, His food, was not only to do the will of the Father once, or when it was pleasant and convenient, or even just every now and again, but His food, notice He says, is to finish the Father's work. Christ is the embodiment of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. His entire life, every moment, every interaction, He presents Himself to His Father as a continuous living sacrifice of obedience up until the very last moment when from the cross He declares, it is finished. All of it. All the Father's work that He gave Me to do is finished. With perfect, willing devotion, Christian, Christ accomplished our righteousness. And this moment in Samaria is a part of that work that He was sent to do. And then, a transition here in the text. From His own example and His own commitment to His Father's work, He now excites His disciples, and by implication, His church, to diligence in their work. And Christian, I want us to pay attention here. This has significant application to us. They, the disciples, and we are to be workers with Christ And therefore, we should be workers like Christ who make the work of the kingdom our food. Notice verse 35. He says, Do you not say there are still or yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, that would have been a very common phrase that would be spoken as an encouragement to the sower at the beginning of sowing season. Right, planting season. Um, after they have labored and toiled and sowing and plowing the field, they would remind themselves four months, yet four months, and then comes the harvest. And the point of that encouragement is this. It reminds the sower that all of his work of sowing and watering and tending his crop, all of that happens for the great moment of the harvest. And Jesus is saying to them, you guys pay close attention to the, to the time of wheat harvest, but presently you're oblivious to the harvest of souls that is right in front of you. And He says to them, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He's saying to them, looking them in the eyes, disciples, Lift up your eyes. There is a multitude of pagan Samaritans who up until this point have been cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and they are coming out to meet me and hear the Gospel. The harvest is among you. The harvest is here. 
You guys are focused on the food for your stomachs and you would have me to stop and eat. But look at the lost and dying souls approaching us to hear about living water. And He's saying to them, now is not the time to rest. Now is the time to put in the sickle in order to reap. The Lord of the harvest is here and it's time to bring in the harvest. And Christian, how appropriate the illustration of the harvest, how appropriate that illustration is to emphasize the urgency needed at the moment. Harvest time is busy time. Harvest time is all hands on deck. It's not not time to relax and leave the fruit hanging on the branch. It's time to work. And also, harvest time is a short and limited time which does not last forever. Matthew Henry says, when harvest comes, it is a work that must be done then or not at all. And then, if this urgency is not enough to motivate His disciples, Christ, at the close of our section here, even graciously adds an incentive for their labor. Notice verse 36-38. through And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So, Notice what Jesus is saying to them. Not only is this an appropriate time for labor, it is a profitable time for labor. That's an amazing thing. Jesus, as our gracious Master, I mean, it would be enough for us to serve Him simply because it's the right thing to do. And yet, Jesus in His grace stands ready to reward His laborers. And when He says they are are gaining wages here, He doesn't mean... It's, he's not talking about wages in the strict sense of merit. Okay, so Just to be clear there. After all, any reward that God gives to us is simply God crowning the graces that He's given to us by His Spirit in the first place. But Jesus means He's getting wages in the sense of the benevolence of Christ in His graciousness to reward His laborers. Reward both now and in the age to come. He says, he who reaps receives wages. Because he who does the will of the Father and labors in his vineyard finds it to be its own reward. Right? Those who give themselves to be busy in the work of the Lord and in the vineyard of the Lord find the sustenance of their faith. They find a good conscience and growing assurance as they abound in the work of the Lord. But more than that, Jesus says He gathers fruit for eternal life. There's a couple different ways people understand that. I take that to mean the joy of seeing sinners saved by our instrumentality. Let's be honest. Think about Judgment Day. What you're going to want to be able to present to God. On the last day, we are not going to be proud of the houses we built, the jobs that we worked, things of this world that are of very little significance. The things that we will want to most be able to present to God in glory is the souls who are in glory as a result of God's gracious work through us. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our crown, our glory, and our joy. And notice, Jesus says that it is a rejoicing that will be shared both by the sower and by the reaper. He says to them, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And he says, yet both will rejoice together. Now again, there are several different ways people have interpreted that. And the main question is, who who are the others who have labored? into whose labor the disciples here are entering into. And some have suggested, well, it's Jesus who labored. Some have suggested that it's the woman who labored and they're entering into into her her labors. Um, But I think what's going on here is I think Jesus is making a contrast between the epochs of redemptive history. Okay, Those who have labored and sown refers, I think, to the Old Testament prophets who gave the hope of the harvest. They were the ones who laid the foundation of Christ to come and His Gospel. And now the apostles are appointed in the fullness of time to bring the harvest now that Christ has come into the world. Right, The Old Covenant ministry with Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others was the ministry of tilling the soil and sowing the seed But the apostles and the church that is going to be built upon their Word will be those who then begin to bring the Gospel to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, on the last day, both will rejoice together. It's parallel to how Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. And Jesus gives us this picture that all of God's laborers, no matter what part they played, the Kingdom of God in the end shall rejoice together with one voice. Now, that brings us to a close of our exposition. I want to turn now to our doctrine and our application. And this morning, I've combined doctrine and application again for the sake of time and for the sake of keeping my word count below uh, or at where it should be. Um, and I have two, two main things that I want to draw out for us this morning. Two ways that we're instructed by this text doctrinally but also the application of how those things should apply and touch down in our lives. And I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, Christian, let's begin first where I think we ought to begin by dwelling on the person of Christ and His work. Number one, we are instructed by this passage regarding the great zeal Christ had in accomplishing our redemption. We are instructed regarding the great zeal Christ had in accomplishing our redemption. Christian, these words, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work, are the zeal of a holy, committed, and devoted Savior to doing and finishing the work of His Father, which is your salvation and the accomplishment of your redemption. The Father in eternity past covenanted to give His Son a kingdom. 
And the Son agreed to undertake for us and to discharge everything that needed to be done in order to purchase that kingdom and make us members of it. And what we are seeing here actually being played out in time is Christ with unspeakable eagerness and devotion and selflessness executing the terms of that covenant in our behalf and for our sake. And Christian, here's what we need to really think about and understand and ponder this morning. The work that the Father gave His Son to do was by no means an easy work. It's true, this Samaritan revival was one of the more pleasant aspects of Christ's ministry. But notice, He said it is His food not only to do the will of the Father now, but it is His food to finish the work. And what did it take to finish it? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What Jesus undertook for us in redemption was enduring immeasurable shame and sorrow and rejection and mockery and pain which all culminated in the cross of Christ where He bore in His own sinless body the wrath of God to forgive the sins of all of His people. That was His work. And Jesus here says, it is My food to finish it. Christian, think about it. It is His food. Luke 9 Verse 51, which by the way, later this afternoon you can see it's it's echoing Isaiah 50, verse 7, in which Isaiah says of the Messiah that He set His face like flint, which is a phrase that means with determination. Luke tells us, Luke 9.51, now it came to pass when the time had come for Him to be received up, That is, Jesus' last days were drawing near and He was to be put to death at Jerusalem and He knew it. Luke says that He steadfastly set His face to go to Jerusalem. You know what's amazing? We even have in the other Gospels His own disciples pleading with Him not to go to Jerusalem. Because they know that they will kill you there. And yet Jesus wholeheartedly, zealously committed to His Father's will and devoted with love to His church, considers it His food to go to Jerusalem. Christian, do you realize that Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace? Such was the cheerfulness and eagerness of Christ to give Himself a ransom for His people. Another example of His zeal and love for us. John 13, verse 1. John 13, 1 is a a verse that has always amazed me. It's always a verse that convicts me about my failure to imitate Jesus' zeal to doing the Father's will. John writes in chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come that He should depart out of this world to the Father, 
Okay? At this point in the Gospel, Gethsemane is hours away. The trial is coming. The beatings is, are coming. The crucifixion is coming. Now, Christian, if you knew that, like Christ did, who is the one who needs comfort and help and support in that moment? Jesus did. It's His moment of greatest need. And yet, John says when he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When he, in his greatest moment of need, needed the support and help of others, what does he do? He stays lockstep with his Father's will. And he spends his last hours as a free man comforting His disciples and preparing them for His departure and praying for them in John 17, even though He knows in a matter of hours they will all desert Him while He dies for them. We sing that line in my song is love unknown. Yet cheerful He to suffering goes that He His foes from death might free. Isaiah 53 Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He didn't protest the will of the Father. He didn't complain and resent the will of the Father. He submitted Himself to the point even of the shameful death on the cross. Christian, that is love. That is mercy. That is devotion. That is devotion like the world never had seen and will never see again. The devoted zeal of the God-man. And so Christian, I want to speak to you. When you are tempted to think to yourself at times, Christ has let me go. Christ is letting me slip out of His grip. His his staff and His rod are departing from me. Christian, remember and remind yourself how zealously He sought you in the first place. How He worked to purchase us. And how He labored to win us. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says of Christ, He will see the labor of His soul and He shall be satisfied. Which means He cannot lose you. He does not abandon the work of His hands. We we just sung in that third hymn, Christ shall have the prize for which He died. What? An inheritance of nations. And so you, fainting and tired and fearful Christian, you will make it to the congregation of the righteous just as surely as Christ sits in heaven right now praying for you. Do you realize that right now, Christ in heaven has the same zeal to keep His own as He did when He came down from heaven to purchase them? It is His food to keep those whom He has redeemed. And it's true, Christian, we lack devotion. We lack zeal for the lover of our souls, but thanks be to God that the lover of our souls never lacks devotion to His Father and to us. Therefore, having considered Christ's zeal for His work leads us to our second doctrine and application. 
Number two, we are instructed with regards to how zealously we ought to abound in the Lord's work. Okay? We are instructed, secondly, with regard to how zealously we ought to abound in the Lord's work. Christian, there is no more rewarding privilege than to be busy laboring in the Lord's vineyard and to be worn out by working in the Lord's harvest. And Jesus says to these disciples, and by application to us, His church, He says to us, lift up your eyes and look at the fields and see they are already white for harvest. Now as I mentioned, when Jesus talks about those who sowed and the apostles who are now entering into the harvest of their labors, I believe He's contrasting the harvest, which is this Gospel dispensation, He's contrasting that with the previous epochs which were marked by the hard work of sowing. Christian, we live in the most blessed epoch of redemptive history. We don't live in the epoch of the prophets who sowed in tears and saw little fruit and who labored to reveal Christ in mere shadow and when the glory of the kingdom was restricted to Israel's borders. We live in the time of the harvest in which it is time now to gather from the four corners of the earth those who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so, Christian, harvest is upon us. And therefore, let us be busy in the Lord's work. Share Christ openly and boldly and confidently. I may have nothing to say to you this morning in this point of application that is new to you. And that's okay. My hope this morning is to put you in remembrance of these things and to stir up within you a fresh zeal to be hard at work in the kingdom and the proclamation of the Gospel to the world. Jesus commands us, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but what about all my other responsibilities? Okay. I know we have responsibilities. Okay? And they're legitimate. And many of them are ones that we cannot give up on lest we sin against God. Okay? I know that. And I could spend ten minutes qualifying to death what I don't mean by seek ye first the kingdom of God, of heaven. But I think you know that already. And so... What I want to plead with you this morning is don't use the legitimate responsibilities we have to excuse yourself from being a fruitful laborer for Christ. And I'm just like you, and you know just as well as I do, we're very good at that. Of hiding behind legitimate things so that at the end of the day, really all of the kingdom work has been squeezed out of our schedule. One life will soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last. Christian, what wages and fruit are we laboring for? Are they the wages of this life? And like these disciples, getting more caught up in what is earthly, things that will burn away at the judgment, rather than being consumed with things that are spiritual. Or are we seeking the spiritual fruit that abounds to our credit in the life to come? 
Jesus told a parable in Matthew 24, 45-51 about two servants. The wise servant and the evil servant. And it's a a parable about the interim period between the first and second coming of Christ. And the master leaves his servants with instructions on how they are to run the household while he is away. And when the master departs, the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delayed in his coming. And so the evil servant begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. Basically, he begins to just live for worldliness and for himself, the present world. But the wise servant does as his master told him. And Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, finds so doing. Christian, let me ask you this. With just Judgment Day honesty, it's better to think about Judgment Day now than when Judgment Day comes. With Judgment Day honesty, if Jesus were to return today and assess your life, and your priorities, and your endeavors, how you spend your time, how you use your home, would He say He found you hard at work laboring in the task He has given you? Or would He describe you as asleep? And I'll leave you to the judgment of your own conscience on that. Okay? As I have to with mine. But... If you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, no, there's absolutely no room for improvement in terms of my zeal for evangelism and going to work in the kingdom of God, your, your life better look like the Apostle Paul's life, okay? If you're in a place where you can say that. But I know for me, I need the gracious check that Jesus is giving these apostles. And it's all right to own that. Okay? Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. We all have seasons in which our zeal for reaching the lost ebbs and flows. And even on our best days, by the way, it's not half of what we owe the Lord. But oh, to have and to maintain, and that's the key thing, to maintain the zeal that this woman has. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And so Christian, I give you the counsel that I have to give to my own heart and mind and soul. Get before God. Receive the gracious correction from His Word. Confess your sins. Apply the Gospel. And ask the Lord to help you to be a more fruitful gatherer in His harvest. I want to close here by just speaking to two groups of people very very briefly here. Number one, I want to speak to single people. The single person. I know I talked to some of you about struggles and things like that. I know being a single person can at times feel like you're the exception, the norm. And it can feel at times like a curse in its, own, in its own way. But I want to encourage you, if you're single in the Lord's providence, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, while he does not by any means speak disparagingly of marriage, he does speak of the unique freedoms and benefits that come with singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And he says, he tells us that the married person will be concerned about worldly things and how to please his spouse, while the single person is anxious about how to serve the Lord and please the Lord. 
And I want to encourage you single people, while it's not wrong to seek a spouse, you presently in God's providence have freedom to serve the Lord in ways the rest of us do not have. And rather than resenting what God has presently withheld from you, rather you should thank God for the unique freedoms He has given you and go about making good use of it for the glory of God and the service of the kingdom. Second, second group of people, I want to speak to couples. I want to speak to couples, and this applies both to couples with children and without children. Your ministry to the lost in terms of evangelism, and the, king, the harvest of the kingdom, things like that, is going to look different than the single person's. And yet, in some senses, though you have other responsibilities the single person does not have, there are two of you working together. And I want to just, I could, I could be very broad and mention many things. I just want to mention one thing this morning. In particular, Christian couples and Christian families, your home can be, as it were, an embassy of the kingdom. It can be a place where you and your spouse labor side by side in hospitality to the lost, reaching and inviting neighbors and coworkers and friends and family where people are welcomed into your home not only to hear from your lips about what God has done for your soul, and they should hear that, but where they can also tangibly see the fruit of the Gospel in your home. Where they can come into what seems to them a haven where they see the distinctness between Christian marriage and Christian parenting as opposed to worldly marriage and worldly parenting. Where they see families worshiping God together. And they see the graciousness of Christians and how they own and confess sin and they forgive one another. And where they taste something, though it be secondhand, they taste something of the grace of Christ and the transforming effects of the Gospel. And I know that takes sacrifice. That takes feeling vulnerable at times, knowing that in some sense your house is just an open door to anyone and everyone who needs help. But brothers and sisters, sisters, I want to encourage you, that is a key vehicle as a couple, Christian couple, for laboring together in the harvest. I mean, most families can't just kind of up and go every, meeting, uh, every evening to do street evangelism. Right? If you're single, you can maybe do that. Married people can't necessarily have that same freedom. But you can invite the world into your home to see the Gospel put on display. So with that, let us close in prayer. May God give us, brothers and sisters, the zeal of Christ. And may He equip us to do His will in the work of the kingdom and the harvest of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that You would stir up our hearts to obey Your Word. Help us, Father, not to be those who are hearers of the Word only, but doers. Father, we all confess that we are at times like these disciples, oblivious to the spiritual harvest that is going on around us, that we are more caught up in the things of this world and this life 
Father, we do pray that You would help us, that You would lift up our eyes, that we would look upon the fields as it were and see that they are ripe unto harvest. Father, help us when we grow, when we get into grooves in which we just go day by day on with life, just thinking about moment by moment the things that we need for the body, things that we need to provide for others. Help us, Father, to be more sensitive and reminded that in every providence You have placed us to be those who are laborers in the vineyard. Father, we thank You for Your your tenderness with us. We thank You for Christ's tenderness with His disciples. Father, we thank You for the devotion of Christ for us that we do not stand or fall before You on the basis of our own faithfulness, but upon the faithfulness of Christ who did and finished the work that You gave Him to do. Father, thank You for giving Your Son. We thank You that You have provided for us an unshakable foundation. Your Son, who is the same yesterday and today and forevermore, who still in heaven as our High Priest zealously intercedes for us as He pleads the merits of His sacrifice in our behalf, And it is because of Him that we shall never perish. We thank You for Him. We pray that His example to us would be the motivation that fuels us to return all that we have to Christ and service to Him. Father, if Your Son be God and died for us, what sacrifice can we say is too great to give back in return? Help us, Father, to to be more proactive in thinking about how we can reach the lost, about how we can be more faithful to Your command to us as Your church. Stir us up. Help us as a church to stir one another up to consider love and good deeds. Help us, Lord, Lord, to glean and to grow from things that others have learned that we have not. Help us to impart wisdom that we might all grow into more fruitful and faithful laborers. Father, again, we pray for any who are here who don't know Christ. Draw them in, we pray. We pray that You would be gracious to to them in their souls. Cause them not to go away indifferent, but like this woman, to be convicted of their sin and their need of this Christ the Messiah who has come, the Savior of the world, work in their hearts. Grant them belief, we pray. We pray that You would draw near to us now as we come to the Lord's table. Cause us to rejoice in the perfect Savior that we have and in the blessed gift of the church that He has purchased with His own blood. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.